0: Welcome to episode number seven of the Road to Cinema podcast, featuring director Henry Jaglom. On today's episode, we discuss the making of Easy Rider, the Oscar-winning documentary Hearts and Minds, which chronicles the Vietnam War, and Mr. Jaglom's friendship with the legendary director and actor Orson Welles, which culminated in last year's book, My Lunches with Orson. For more information on the Road to Cinema podcast, to read the Road to Cinema blog, and to watch our Road to Cinema YouTube series, please visit jogroadproductions.com. And now we join Henry Jaglum as he discusses how making a documentary in Israel during the Six-Day War led him to re-edit a a four-and-a-half-hour version of Easy Rider into the hour-and-a-half masterpiece we know today, along with actor Jack Nicholson.
1: That defined everything, because, first of all, I'm very connected to being a Jew, so Israel is very close to me. Half my family are Israelis. So um, I wanted to be there. You know, and it was very difficult to get flights, and it was a complicated thing. And then I figured I, I want to be a filmmaker someday. I'm, I'm, at that point, I was an actor guest starring in Gidget and The Flying Nun and, and <laughs> things that I thought were not necessarily the way I wanted to have in my adult life. Psych out, the, I think, was an uh, interesting yeah. turn. <laughs> and, and so uh, I, uh, I decided I'd take a camera with me to see what was going on in this war zone, and I knew I had a lot of friends in the, who were journalists in the Israeli newspapers and in the Army, so I could get into the occupied territories, I could get to see things. Uh, so I bought a little camera, but I knew I was technologically, uh, I'm not just bad, I'm horrible. So I knew that if I tried to use a thing with a zoom lens, for instance, it would be out of focus because I wouldn't do it right. That was before they were automatic everything. So I bought a little non-zoom lens, 8mm camera, which had 4-minute clips you put into it. But if you wanted to do a close-up, you had to do this. If you wanted to do a wide shot, you had to do that. And I ran around and I made this 5-hour film. Did you have any sound equipment with you at all? No. Silent film. And I did it... I, I I ended up doing what is called, though I never knew it at the time, cutting um, cutting uh, in the camera uh, rather than cutting after the fact. You know what I mean? Because yeah. I knew I couldn't... Uh, so I'd go, go up close, cut, and uh, I had a good, young, strong pair of legs. Mm-hmm. So I was running up sand dunes and seeing the Egyptian tanks and then the shoes when the Egyptians and soldiers had left their shoes behind. And then the Israeli kids... You know, having a little, and then I was just running down the sand dune, and you know, and I bored all my friends in Los Angeles with this five-hour thing with played with Israeli um, martial music, music from army music, Uh, and I just, you know, uh, made them listen, and it flowed very well. It was long, it was boring, but it flowed very well. And one of those friends had been my counselor in summer camp, a guy named Bert Schneider. And he was producing a film called Easy Rider. And uh, Dennis Hopper at that point had decided that the film was perfect in four and a half hours and he wasn't going to cut it into into what could be released by Columbia Pictures. Uh, it was perfect. Don't touch it. Some French filmmaker had come over and told him that, and he agreed. So, Bert, having seen what I did with the Israel thing, hired me to come in and work on the editing of Easy Rider. Jack Nicholson and I took adjoining editing rooms. I knew nothing about editing, as I told you. I had done. Yeah. I, I was a fraud. So you had
0: never used editing
1: equipment. I, I didn't know what, that. I was yeah. a fraud. I, I had done everything <laughs> on my legs, so I, I didn't tell Bert that. He said, "You're a good editor." I said, "Thank you." It was just like me running in a close-up and then running, you know, back. Um, and he's uh, and there was an editor sitting there with white gloves. Whatever it was, I so he said, well, what would you like? And I'm sitting behind him in my room. Jack's over there. All Jack had said to me is he doesn't want to touch any of his own, all those scenes in the, you know. Campfire, campfire. And, yeah. And I'd seen them, and I know Jack, and I know how much more interesting he is than a lot of stuff that Peter and Dennis were going on about. So I said, there's not enough Jack in there. Is there any way that I can take? Uh, he said, what do you mean, any way? I said, well, can I flip somebody over so he's looking in this direction? And then he said, yeah, of course. I said, yeah, of course. So would you? Uh, I, was lear- I learned what I was doing while I had no idea. And I, I edited uh, about half of the film, Jack, yeah. the other half, both under the supervision of, um, of uh, Bert Schneider and... With Dennis's agreement.
0: How would you say that four and a half version looked compared to what eventually? Uh, Listen, was I, I
1: went into a room, yeah. and there were, uh, at that screening room, there was the big screening room at Columbia, there were 600 people. They were all stoned. It was like the place was a haze of dope. I was the only one, I think, who wasn't stoned. For whatever reason, I wasn't <laughs> stoned and they thought it was great and it went ride after ride so the difference was what ended up as one ride in Easy Rider was six rides with a musical interlude Dennis talked and talked and talked in that kind of strange way of his and you know when I I did tracks with Dennis did you ever see that? yeah I I did the most interesting thing I've ever done in a movie I went through the entire movie because Dennis when you encourage him to be spontaneous speaks the way he speaks and when he speaks, Sphere spoke, I guess, he's dead now. When he spoke, he would say, yeah, man, it's like, man, if if I want a man, go there, man. So I took out 263 mans. You can do that and the mouth, the visual doesn't betray you. Yeah. Because he s- says, but he's mumbling or... It's you don't scattered. get that. So yeah. I, so I took out 263 mans of his speech to, to get that tremendous performance of him. Um, but... An Easy Rider which was before that he was just going on and on at, this, at these things so I switched a lot of that so that he's looking and Jack is going on and on yeah. and uh, that was in my opinion my biggest contribution though I worked on
0: the because Jack wouldn't work on his own scenes he didn't want to right. be seen as uh, well, I think it's self. a great element yes. because you have Dennis Hopper and Peter Fonda very sort of stoic and but silent in, but, and in, but, and origi- but, in,
1: but in the original cut yeah. Dennis and Peter were talking Jack was occasionally, you know, it was just, that was a big switch for me, for the film. Other than that, I, you know, I tucked in things, I brought things together, and it, 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 and Dennis was there, you know, it was all under the supervision of Bert
0: Schneider. I learned a lot on that film, though I never would let anybody do that to, to, to my part. Um What's interesting, you've uh, actually hand-edited most of your films, of is that true? All of them. So, uh, you learned how to use the editing equipment, and do it like. Well, have you ever switched to digital? Because, I just... uh, now I have yeah.
1: the last two or three films, and now, and now I've got an editor who works very much with me, and we're very, very in sync. But it, is very, it was hard to give up my cam editing machine. I did the first 16 films on uh-huh. it, and uh, 17, 17 films on it, and I didn't use an editor or an assistant editor. I was there all night, boxes of the film, putting them on, doing it, cutting it myself, doing all of as that. As well as
0: the sound. you, Yeah, that, yeah. all of that. Well,
1: well, we then will go into labs, you know, for a final thing. We then go into sound editing. and uh, But, uh, yes, all the original stuff, is you put the stripe of sound here, a stripe of film here, and, you know, you... And I love that. It was like sculpting. Orson once said that uh, the thing about me is that uh, I was like this... this Eskimo he, he saw in a, in a um, documentary mm-hmm. who was sculpting a big, a big walrus tooth and the, 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 the guy making the mm-hmm. film asked him, what are you, do, what are you making?" Yeah. And the Eskimo looked up bewildered and mm-hmm. said, "I'm trying to find out what's inside." And Orson said, "That's you with me." That was a film he was in. And someone told said, "That's you with me, with the other actors, with yourself, always cutting away at us, trying to find out what's inside. So that was a great way to do it on the chem editing machine because you were literally holding the pieces, splicing them, putting the tape together. And so on. Now I'm with Ron Vignoni, who's a great editor, but I've got to say, can we move that to that and do that? And, here? and he says, yeah, sure. I say, okay, do it. Yeah. So it's a, there is a huge difference. And I do miss that very much. And on the other hand, there are so many things that can be done now, and in such speed that I could, that would take
0: months something that I uh, you know I can do in, in a day and a half. Are you now using uh, digital cameras to shoot your films? Uh, starting this last film, the film that's
1: coming out next, uh, Ovation. Ovation. Yeah. It was for the first time yeah. shot digitally, which meant to me only one thing. I mean, I used two cameras. What it meant that I could. Have the actors go on forever and instead of ten minute clips,
0: which all my mind has always been having to yeah. uh, you know get it in within ten minutes. with you, the expensive film and developing. Uh, no, I don't no, know because film film
1: is either four hundred feet mags or thousand feet mags, which okay. means you know you've got four or ten minutes, and then you got to reload. So the actors have to stop. What's great about this is that I can just say you know okay start and then I can let them go for 30 minutes yeah, and film it all and
0: get two minutes that I want out of it and the actors never have to lose that you know that moment that involvement yeah. that's right it's a, a huge difference in terms of what you can get in performance Yeah, uh, so I was wondering about uh, Bert Schneider he gave you sort of your first opportunity to direct he, a feature film he did the and, most uh, amazing thing you guys were also involved in Hearts and Minds which must be like probably one of the greatest documentaries ever made Mm. Uh, so I was wondering if you could talk a little about... Uh,
1: he was the guy responsible for the whole new wave in Hollywood. If it weren't yeah. for him, Scorsese and, and uh, Francis Coppola and other people would never have come about. Uh, he opened up the doors to independent people making films for studios. Columbia Pictures gave him the opportunity. Any A million then was like 10, say, or 12 now. And he'd, they'd give him a million dollars for eight films, and each film cost a million. So he would give the filmmaker the chance uh, to make that film, and he got five easy pieces Last Picture Show, uh, um, Marvin e- Gardens. Easy Rider, yeah. King of Marvin Gardens, uh, all, you know, uh, A Safe Place, and so on. Giving us all a chance. The biggest thing about him, though, as opposed to the experience on Easy Rider where we all sat with Dennis and then Dennis didn't want to cut, you know, saw it as perfect. So I was assigned along with Jack to whittle it down. When he saw my phone, the, you know... The, yeah, safe place. The safe place. He looked at it. He was... And he was crying at the end. So I thought, great. I got him. I was crying. I said, oh. He said, I said, that's... I like seeing that reaction. He said, the only person more indulgent... In the world than you, in having made this film, is me because I'm going to let you. I'm not going to cut it. I'm not going to try to do what we did with Easy Rider. I'm not going to even. I have no idea how to do that. It's going to lose every penny <laughs> it cost. No audiences won't understand this because it's all in the mind of a young girl. Have you seen it? A safe place. Yeah. You know, it's a very abstract, poetic film to be made by a studio. It was. It was, it was a weird fix, but he. he he gave me, essentially, final cut. And when we, sh- when we screened it first at the New York Film Festival, half the audience went crazy for it and half booed and hissed and really couldn't stand it. And It was a huge like thing. And Jack Nicholson said then what was true, which was, okay, we should pull this from release, dub the whole thing in French. Nobody knows who I am yet. Call me Henri Jacques And release it as a new French filmmaker making a film. He said... They'll go for it. They'll love it. it <laughs> it's in a good, like Gudar and like you know all that. Yeah. Um, and he was right. The audience was not prepared for an American film. That now I'm getting, forty years later, some pretty damn good reviews. But if it wasn't for Ernias Nin, uh, you know about that. Yeah, she it, wrote an you, article uh, about it right after print, that and uh, praised the film. it. And got it. it uh, printed it in yeah. every counterculture as there were then the newspaper. And suddenly, the audience of young women and took a 16 millimeter print of it on college campuses to these women 's groups that she talked to yeah. and showed it, took my name off like Jack suggested didn 't say or but she didn 't say who had made it till the end. Yeah. They were all sure a woman had made it because it was a portrait of a, w- a woman 's emotional life. She then told them that it was a man, and about and so the film, which was playing in a small theater here in Los Angeles and in New York, started having young women coming to it, and that started my audience and led me to all of what I'm doing, which is making films. Sixty uh, percent, I don't know, seventy percent, you know, about women or about men who really like and are interested in women's lives. Uh, it, it, it seemed to me at that point, oh, I get it. Nobody's making films in Hollywood. It's like these boy babies are making films little teenage or preteen boys out in the Midwest, yeah. and nobody's making adult films, especially not about women's lives. Uh, Bert Schneider allowed me, by by not doing what he'd done with every other film he produced, he just said, I can't figure this out. And I said, well, why are you letting me do this? <laughs> and he said, it made me cry. He said, I, 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 don't, I think it, nobody will understand it. I don't understand it. I, uh, yeah. It won't make a penny, but it made me cry. That's what... It, he was this kind he believed of, in the filmmaker he produced, he he was, and he uh, trusted himself, yeah he didn't do tests with audiences he didn't go out. he was fantastic and um,
0: I always wondered why spoiled he... Me uh, for life <laughs> really I always wondered why he never continued to produce films and have a company and really drugs you know, was that uh cocaine and uh, becoming crazy behind it
1: that's really why mm-hmm. fucked up um. Saddest. If I, I I've often said that if I were F. Scott Fitzgerald and could write like that, yeah, uh, I would. The great Hollywood novel would be Bert Schneider, The Rise and Fall. He had been my counselor in summer camp, so that means when I was five, six, and seven, he was this guy I looked up to. My I had a goofy older brother, who's the same, who was the same age as he was. Michael Emile. Uncle Emile. Yeah. <laughs> uh, who I've used to, to be the goofy guy he is. Sitting ducks and, and, uh, and so many. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, which was Jack's idea, using him. Nicholson said to me when he met my brother, you've got gold here. Just put him on the screen and they will laugh. You know. So, But I wasn't too happy having my brother when I was five, six, seven, eight, because my brother was this weird goofball with a German accent, and the kids called him Hitler. It was during World War Two. And he had this hair, blonde hair, coming down. Anyway, and Bert was the all-American boy, this gorgeous blonde athlete, too. and and whose um, father was Ape Schneider. Yeah. The, uh, all that meant movie. to us was we got all the movies. I I remember sitting at night uh, outside a huge, huge tent. This must have been, I must have been six, and uh, the movie is the ape. What is that ape? Oh, King Kong. King? yeah, King Kong. <laughs> when you're six sitting outside with a gigantic sheet and two boxes where sound's coming from. I'll never forget that experience. And we did that, we got that, and others because his father was Abe Schneider, so we got the films from, uh, I don't know where I I was going. Oh, about uh,
0: sort of why Bert Schneider never continues. Well, yeah, Yeah. so he, you know,
1: he was the man I was closest to in my life, anybody other than my father and my brother. And uh when I had come out here, we became very, very close and as yeah. uh, he let me direct the movie, and then he let me he released it without making me even try to make it commercial, which was against his own interest you know uh, 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 he knew it was going to be a huge failure commercially and and his reasoning was that simple emotional which people don't do in this town, it made me cry yeah. so um he he got more and more into politics of an extreme left-wing kind. He financed Huey Newton and the Black Panthers.
0: He f- financed our... Did f- he help him uh, flee to Cuba? That was like a story no, a I no, read. No, I can simply yeah. say yes to it. <laughs> for years I said, it's not for me to say. Yes, yes, he did. Yeah, I read in, uh, I think it was Variety or Deadline, I guess they're developing a film based on how he helped Huey Newton. Uh, yeah, some uh, companies. No kidding. In production on that? (laughs) No no Artie Ross, a friend of ours,
1: had a little uh, ship, boat, whatever they called, sail thing, and took uh, Huey to Cuba. Wow. He's dead now, so we can talk about that. (laughs) Uh, And Huey's dead, of course. Um, Bert got more and more into left, not just left, but extreme left uh, uh, politics. We got into huge arguments about Israel, for instance.
0: Uh, which is, uh, as I mentioned earlier, a huge part of me. Is it true that at the the, the Cannes Film Festival, uh, Columbia Pictures sort of chopped off the logo on the film print of Hearts and Minds when it was about to uh, be projected? Like they were so adamant against distributing the film? Who was adamant against distributing the film? Oh, Columbia Pictures. No,
1: no, I don't no. know where
0: you heard that. What happened
1: was, uh, was that Columbia Pictures refused, period, yeah. to show it or to have anything to distribute do with it, it yeah. because people in the government including the defense secretary had seen it and had said it was an insult to American troops and all this stuff and so Columbia wouldn't release it and it, uh, it had cost them a million dollars under, under Burt's deal that was the first time they did that and Warner Brothers said we'll release it we think it's a great film but um, somebody had to pay Columbia a million dollars back to get the film from them, to give it to Warner Brothers. Yeah. Zach Norman, do you know who that is? Uh, he helped you produce Tracks, originally. An actor in many of my films, yeah. a weird, fast-talking, funny, bald <laughs> guy with a mustache, who plays with my brother in Sitting Ducks, if you remember who he is. yeah, He... He had gone to doctors and dentists and all these people to raise money for tracks because after a safe place, nobody would finance me. And um, he, so he, there was a tax deal then that you could write off, I think, six to one or seven to one. If you invested in film, you could put one dollar, you could write off six. They did it for the oil industry, cattle, I think, and films. And he raised a million dollars to make tracks, my second film, after three years of my trying to get it made within the system and failing um, so we had that million dollars to make tracks so Bert said to me can we use your million dollars and he'd given me a safe place and everything else and I believed in, very much in Hearts and Minds which was the, the film we're talking about it eventually it won an Academy Award it did win an yeah. Academy Award I, it's in my name that Academy Award mine and Zach because we're the, we are the, 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 the what are the we, we are the presenters that film not the producer that's bird we're the presenters that it was given to, um, and we distribute it by the way now ironically yes, our company Rainbow but um, I said I went to Zach who's not a political person at all not no consciousness in that area he's a hustling guy nice guy good heart but I said I want to give this to uh, this million that you've spent two years raising to Burt so he can buy this film from from uh, Columbia and have Warner Brothers release and he said okay and he started going out trying to raise it again for me for tracks, took another year managed only a half a million but there was enough for me to make the movie yeah. but we got that and that's how we bought it away from Columbia so they never refused it They just, re- I mean they never refused to show it or something, they wouldn't I don't know what you said about Cannes they were not involved. Oh, something like they cut off
0: the uh, logo yeah. the, the logo from the film
1: print. The logo
0: was taken yeah. off because Warner Brothers yeah. bought the film. It's a, so it's a Warner Brothers release. Yeah. And uh, there was that famous uh, Academy Award speech that I guess Bert Schneider gave up. Thanking the Viet Cong. It's very controversial. Reading a letter from the Viet Cong. Sinatra got pissed off. Bob Hope. Yeah. yeah. Did uh, he ever talk to you about the backlash oh, from that? Me. Or was that traumatic to him at all? As no, far no as, it wasn't uh, traumatic. He loved it. Yeah. he was a fighter that's what he believed in and he was yeah. passionate
1: about it yeah. Yeah. We, all, we all were I mean I, Jane Fonda and I were in a, a group ran a group uh, called the Entertainment Industry for Peace and Justice and we were sending out shows to, to, for the army it was also called it was called uh, the Free the Army but it's also Fuck the Army it was a, a F, F, FTA and we were sending out shows to to venues, like clubs or whatever, near the bases where the army were, to counter the Bob Hope pro-war shows that were coming. yeah. And getting more and more people, soldiers, involved in counter, in, in getting, undermining their attraction to the war and so on. Uh, but how did we get to Jane? Uh, oh, from about the uh, Oscar speech? Yeah, but she wasn't oh, yeah. that. Anyway, but but yes, the two, my two heroes, Sinatra
0: and Bob Hope, of my childhood, both got incredibly, insanely furious. It's kind of ironic since they're Academy members and, you know, it's sort of like the Academy voted for Hearts and Minds. Yeah, there was that. Yeah, but yeah. that was, uh, that was uh, despite the older, more
1: conservative members, the Academy had just begun to break the age barrier. Yeah. And uh, we didn't expect to win because of that. But it's also such Peter Davis, who's really the artist behind this film, the director, it made such a great film. You yeah. just, have
0: you seen it? Yeah, it's a powerful yeah. movie. Yeah. Uh, Criterion came out with a DVD yeah. or a Blu-ray we, we uh, we release it. We, we are the ones who distribute that film. Oh, it's through, uh, and you work with Criterion? and Well, we through, let we Criterion do that. Yeah. That was a beautiful print of the movie. It's, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, so I was wondering you have a very interesting setup where you uh, you do production you distribute your own films yeah. uh, sometimes
1: it's much easier and happy if we don't have to if somebody comes along and who we think I mean Paramount gave us a million dollars for a uh, festival in camp which cost me four hundred thousand so that was a very good deal uh, Samuel uh, Goldwyn gave us a million also for a film that cost 300 uh always oh, oh. yeah <laughs> i do my research. I your research my father finally said now finally it's this is that's you have got a business yeah <laughs> when you, make, when you make something for 300,000 you get a million that's you get a profit a, that's a business yeah he never under, but you know what i did on easy rider before selling, then before becoming a director i was given a choice by bert do you want $1,000 a week which to me was what that's fucking great $1,000 a week you know I had been an actor on the contract to to Screen Gems when I did you know Easy Flying None and Digit and all that and they gave me 500 a week and here was 1,000 a week for having fun cutting you know Um, and I said sure he said or I can give you um, a half a point of the picture so I talked to my father who's a very successful businessman he said a half a point of nothing is nothing film doesn't make money if they really are going to give you $1,000, you are finally doing something in this business right. For eight weeks, that means 8000 That's your money. So I took that. The secretary to BERT, who had the same offer and chose to have a half a percent, retired afterwards with, and had made, has made a total, I think it is, of $820,000 wow. on the 1%. for a house, retired, you know. So And I go to my
0: father and say, like this, he says, it's still the right choice. How often is it going to be something like that? Yeah, it was movie, incredible. You know. I think that movie was made for, what, like under a million, and it made oh, like under a few hundred thousand. Yeah, in that area, 250,000. And it's still making, you know, it's a gigantic hit. But. Do you ever do, uh, like, foreign pre-sales to finance your films? We have, or? we have. Yeah. A lot, you know, it used to be a
1: lot more. Going to different territories. And, I used to go to Cannes every year, and, and uh, actually... By the time I came back, I was even. Whatever film it cost, I got more at the count What is that? <laughs> uh, yeah. Now it's become harder because of the crash of DVDs.
0: Uh, but but now there are other outlets, all kinds of outlets. We're sort of iTunes, Netflix, well, we're uh, on all Amazon. Of that. We're on all of, that. all of our films, yeah. And now it's interesting, a lot of independent films uh, distribute... Like even just primarily digitally, sort of on iTunes, first mm-hmm. week. Uh, is that something that you're always conscious of? How the digital world we is helping be, yeah. uh, independent filmmakers? Yeah, sure. It's Sharon's department mostly <laughs> distribution. Uh, so uh, the book that came out last uh, last year, uh, my lunches with Orson. Yeah. Uh, so you had had these tapes for what maybe about thirty years. More uh, than thirty. Yeah, we we made. B- b- Eighty-five
1: was the last was when Orson died. So what is that? Uh, how many years ago? Uh, Twenty 15, nine. fifteen. So it's twenty-nine yeah. years ago. Okay. And we've done those lunches for about five years. I still have a lot of tapes from dinners which I didn't even give them. And they've been these those tapes were sitting in a in a in a box in my office for years I never thought of I never listened to them very clanky sound bad sound you know because I had made them uh, Orson had wanted to write his autobiography you know the story about how they came to yeah, he yeah.
0: wanted to write his autobiography in sometime
1: in the future when he was too old he said to make movies but yeah. no, he was afraid he was going to forget he was beginning to forget a lot so he of said
0: stuff. just say record art when, when we're talking while we're
1: talking but yeah. do it in an inconspicuous way so I'm not self conscious and I always carried a black bag then and he said stick it with that apparatus and have it out of there and that's what I did and um, I never thought about it after he died, and I just left them there. And a couple. Did you people, ever listen to the tapes no, again? No. no. Um, and I uh, no, because they were very firm in my mind that it, it was a great, great thing in my life. It's that friendship. And um, he he, but uh, uh, different people had come to me and said you should make a book out of this. I said I don't want to. It's not what I do. I don't know. And then my Peter. Uh, Biskin, who was a friend of mine, uh, because we got into we met when he did um, uh, Easy Riders, Raging Bulls, and he interviewed me, and and I had done something rather risky with him then. I gave him access to I have journals from forty years, very personal, detailed journals of everything. Uh, I used to write every night and um, about everything, and I gave him access to the journals and said, "You you tell me what you can use for this, you know, uh, for the seventies for your book." Uh, easy riders, raging bulls. Yeah. Uh, I'll tell you if it's okay to use it. Is that a deal that you won't use it if I tell you it's not okay? He said yes. So we did that and he was true to his word, which is a He never used anything that not he didn't approve of. He begged me a couple of times for certain <laughs> things. I said no, I won't, you know, that's about so and so and I don't want that. And he never crossed that line. So I knew I could trust him. And uh that's why that's why uh, that's why I gave him the right to and also he was prepared to have all the books transcribed read through them all I mean dude, he did a year and a half so he
0: listened to every tape every single he tape would transcribe it and he, then would, he had it no he had a transcriber so he had yeah, a separate transcriber okay. yeah people who do that for a living yeah and then he read all the transcriptions
1: and listened I mean it's a job it's an incredible job and,
0: and then edited it into the, what it is. And it's good. It's fabulous. It's yeah. like, you read it? It just feels like you're, you're at a, t- like you're a fly on the wall, like you're just there. It's and, ex- and, it, it. and it totally captures the truth of the experience. I mean, it feels exactly
1: like it felt you know, with Orson. It brought back so many wonderful things about him for me.
0: Was there anything surprising to you when you read the book as far as something I that sort of took you off guard, that you had forgotten, that you had spoken to Orson about, or that really uh, was profound
1: no, I lost a friend because of it. I lost a very, very good friend. Peter Bogdanovich was my closest friend probably over for 50 years. And when Maureen Dowd reviewed the book, uh, on the front page of the book review section, she she chose, I don't know her personally, she cho- she chose to write that Henry Jaglum was a mensch. She used the word mensch. As opposed to Peter Bogdanovich in how he tried to help Orson Welles, yeah. and that was on the front page. And I think, I think that's what did it because Peter hasn't, won't answer my emails and hasn't spoken to me. And we were so close; he was at my house, he stayed in my New York apartment. I had a house out here where he stayed, and so on. So I lost. I learned something about that. You know, you read about that in stories. Yeah. But I never had had anything like that. Larson said some very unpleasant things. I was a little
0: surprised uh, what (coughs) Larson had to say about Peter Bogdanovich because I always had this impression that they were great friends, and there was that book that was written. Yeah, that's that's and they were. And
1: he was, and a lot of it's unfair because Peter was very good to Larson, let him stay in his house,
0: Uh, tried to help him get movies off the ground. That's where it got iffy.
1: Yeah. And I think what happened was mainly that there was a movie that Orson wanted to make, Nickelodeon, about early movies. Peter said he was going to help him get financing. He didn't. Maybe he couldn't. And then he ended up making the movie himself. I think that was the turning thing. All I knew is he was still my friend, and I was always defending him against Orson in these lunches. But, uh, you know, that's the, that was the only price i've paid so far negatively everything else has been great about the book but i'm sad i'm sad about that because i really was so close to peter we were both teenagers when we met and we were fighting always he he was booking the theater called the new yorker in new york he was booking old hollywood movies john ford movies yeah. and and i was into uh, godard and fellini and truffaut and you know ingmar bergman and the new wave of British filmmakers, and and he he said everything good has been made in Hollywood before 1940. You're the first person I've actually told that to. I'm sort of sad about it. And I've written him, I've sent him, I I, I talked on NPR and other interviews about the fact that Orson was unfair. Uh, You know, he he was old, he was angry, he was hurt. It wasn't fair because Peter really did help him a lot. But Nickelodeon, I think, was the big that big thing. That uh,
0: yeah, and there's that great interview. Uh, I guess a safe place in the last picture show came out around the same time. Same and, exact uh, I think Molly Haskell had interviewed the two, two of you. Of it's us. a great interview. I think yeah. it's on YouTube as yeah. well. Yeah, yeah.
1: We were tremendous friends. Also, I mean, until look, he was every New Year's Eve party in my house. Every Fourth of July. Yeah. Um, he was in festival in Cannes, he was in Several I mean. of my films. Queen uh, of the in Lot. Queen yeah. yeah. of the Lot. That's right. And uh, I've always, you know, anyway, uh, that's yeah. the sadness that you read about, and you, you never think it's going to happen, you know, with people you know really well. Yeah. But this was, this meant, and I, I'm only guessing, because she he won't talk to me, I'm only guessing that the reason is, not so much what Orson says about him in the book, but the way that uh, she, she re- re- said that thing on the front page of the, of the book review section, which everybody in the world reads, and... Nice thing to say about me, but not a nice thing for Peter. Uh, I think his whole reputation has been, I mean, a huge part of it has been the spokesperson for the Orson
0: thing. Yeah, whatever interview you and see, or uh, You read the book. Yeah, like, it's, so it's brutal sometimes to, uh, yeah. to read that. Yeah. Just because, you know, I read the other uh, uh-huh. Peter Bogdanovich book uh-huh. and you see their rapport. The so. big difference also on that book is that
1: um, Orson edited it after Peter wrote it. He gave it to Orson, and Orson edited it out. And Orson loved to edit his own—you know—edited out all the stuff he didn't like and changed it. And Peter let that happen. Now, this book, Orson's dead. Yeah. he couldn't—I never could have gotten away with letting those things out if he had been alive. He's dead, and I just—I left his words intact exactly as they were. Um, so you really get to know Orson in this book. In Peter's book, you get to know his work ideas really well. And his process, his in process, theater it's and in by film, his work. I did process. Yeah, it's it's in a it's a great book, because but but you don't get to know him personally at all because there he's on guard, and there he's you know, protecting himself, and also he's editing a little bit all all along.
0: But about the work, it's absolutely a great book. Yeah, uh, among your your friendship with Orson that went on for many years, uh, what do you think you miss most about Orson? Uh, your friendship and also maybe even filmmaking advice that he gave you what a great question
1: I don't know um, lunches yeah that's what I miss I miss (laughs) the fact that you never knew what was going to happen I like driving around with him and him showing me things this is where such and such this is where Rita and I lived and you know I missed, the, we had an incredible time at the Cannes Film F- in Paris, first of all, where I testified in this court thing for him to try to get the other side of the wind out. And then in Ca- in Cannes, I brought him there because they wanted to uh, have him present the main award. Yeah, And I had a film there at the time, uh, Ken Cherry Pie, which he had helped me work on the editing and had fun with. And I wanted to show the world that he was ambulatory, you know, so we hid the wheelchair, but he really used a lot to get around and put him, set uh, him down on the hill near the hotel and uh, everybody flocked to him and it was a great way of uh, showing them he's back, he's ready, and we were trying to raise money all over the place, as you could tell in that book. Yeah, and It kept looking like we were going to get it from the French or we were going to get it from this family or we were going to get it from
0: that, and, it was always interesting in the book like at the end of maybe at the end of each chapter he would be so close to getting financing and then suddenly it would just yeah, go the yeah but remember other what way. he
1: said one, once I was so convinced this guy I knew really well had just produced um, what is that Peter Sellers film uh, uh, you know about the guy who's a sort of retarded but becomes oh a, uh, uh, Being There the being, Hal Ashby uh, uh, Hal's yeah uh, and um, Brown Andy Brownsberg is the guy's name, who produced that film. So he was in a great shot. He just produced the Academy Award winning film. Everybody wanted to come to lunch with Orson, so I would say, sure, sure. And I'd arrange lunches. And nobody helped. Nobody helped. They just came to lunch and talked and got him to talk. And Brownsburg said, well, what do you got? And I said, he's written this new movie. I've got him to write this. It's like a bookend to Citizen Kane about the end of the century, the way that Kane was about the beginning of the century. It's called The Other Side of the Wind. Uh, and he said, you got a deal. I said, really? He said, yeah, I'm not claiming it. I don't have to read it. What's the budget? Da-da-da. You got a deal. And he went off. And I said, Orson, let's open up a bottle of Cristal Champagne <laughs> because I've never heard those words before. Uh, and he said, next week it'll all be together. You got a deal next week. And he Orson said, if you knew how many next weeks there have been in the last 20 years... Uh, it was very heartbreaking. If you okay. knew how many next weeks there have been, he said,
0: "We will wait with a champagne until something happens, and nothing happened. The guy disappeared." Just, just kind of a metaphor for the movie business, you know, in general. <laughs> it really is. Yeah.
1: It really is. And I thought for sure I'm not. I'm. I'm a little cynical, but I'm not. You know, steeped enough in it because I've stayed away. I've kept my own world. It's like it's such a nightmare. Everybody wanted to have lunch with him. Every Spielberg, everybody, and then nobody helped. And you know, people. There's so many ways they could have helped. Anyway, yeah. that time, that phrase. Does it say in the book that thing about his phone call to me about his his, his tomb, his his grave? What he uh-huh. wanted on his grave.
0: No, not, not that I he call, remember. He called
1: me up. I just never forgot that. I don't know why it just occurred to me. He calls me up one day, one night, three in the morning, and he says, do you have a pencil? I said, Orson, it's three in the morning. He said, I know. Do you have a pencil? I said, okay. What is it? He said, I know what I want on my gravestone. I said, what? Don't be depressing. Don't be morbid. Go back to sleep. He said, no. I want you to write this down. I know what I want on my gravestone. I said, okay. He said, do you have a pencil? Yes. you piece of paper? Yes okay, write this. He never did Love Boat. <laughs> and I had been working, he had had me working to raise the money on the Love Boat had offered him. I yeah. had gotten them triple by talking, pretending to be his agent. And I was depressed about it because I didn't want him to do Love Boat. But he could use that money and he needed put it towards So yeah. I didn't say anything. And then he calls, he, middle of the night, calls me up. And that's what that's I want on my like, He never did Love Boat. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
0: Uh, I always wondered the other side of the wind. uh, There were some like clips on YouTube of the film that came out. I think one was like you and uh, Paul Mazursky uh, talking. uh, I had that for a while, unless they took it off. I don't know. Yeah, it's amazing. Did uh,
1: listen? I've heard so many (laughs) as many stories as you have. Peter used to talk about it that he was going to. He was trying to get the film out of. He needed a million dollars to get the film to edit it into. You know. I heard all these stories and it was going to be next year it was going to be next year nothing's ever happened that I know of yeah I don't know even who, where that stuff started on uh, on Facebook I was very happy to see it I wish I
0: I mean I, Orson yeah I know it was she, fascinating she was to really, watch those clips and and where that was very <laughs> funny that stuff. was a great conversation you guys had it was yeah. like you know he had one point of view on filmmaking Completely and everything different. else yeah. and Orson set that up purposely for us to get into a big argument <laughs> Uh, I can't remember the last uh, I forgot the name of the film but uh, there was a script that I guess Orson had written that Harnon Milshon was going to finance yeah uh, that is that is exactly I read it. the screenplay of it which is you know, very
1: good um, oh, it would have been much better as a film Orson yeah. screenplays were always his guidelines
0: um, yeah um, the name escapes me for, the big Brass ring the big Brass ring yeah and um which i guess you had kind of motivated him to he to said write he said i can't time. write anymore yeah. because after i went and found that i couldn't sell
1: any of i couldn't sell any deal with him directing any of any of the um, He wanted to do king lear he wanted to do this the immortal star this different things they said if we get a new orson welles thing like one of his great scripts that, he said, I can't write anymore, I can't write anymore. And then one morning, three in the morning, also four o'clock, a phone call. I've written four pages, but they're terrible. And I said, Well, read them to me. And they were great. And, and he didn't believe me, and he hung up. And then the next day at lunch, I said, I want four more. And slowly he wrote this terrific thing. And, uh, and everybody said they needed a new thing from him. They weren't brand And then I took it to every studio head and everybody. And finally Arnon came along and said, okay, I'll do it if I can get one of these seven actors, stars. And much to my horror, each one of those people, one by one, turned Orson down. Each one of whom, Orson was a mythical figure of great, you know, dream, honor, and everything. That was really,
0: you know, that was really, really a huge crushing thing for him. Which was another sort of close call to to get that finance. There was always finance, close calls. Yeah. And, I, and
1: I, I saw my job as to... Uh, as he's about to fall, pick him up again, give him some hope again and um uh, and there were great times of hopefulness and joy, and looks like it's going to happen yeah. and uh you know the truth of what he'd said to me earlier kept coming back to me that he'd said to me once about myself. Get your financing as far. I started going to Europe and getting financing after my friend Zach had raised the money for tracks, and you know, I figured I started seeing what I could do because I, I couldn't do it here anymore. And I found out you can get twenty thousand from this, forty thousand, eighty thousand, especially in the time of, of, of uh,
0: DVDs. What were they called before? Oh, uh, VHS, videotape, mm-hmm. uh, videotapes, H- H- yeah. and. Um, so, you always said, get your money away from Hollywood because they can take your toys away. Yeah. They can just stop it like they did mine. What's great now with the digital technology, the, uh, the auspices true. to make a film are it's so incredible. simple and incredible. streamlined. It changes everything. If Orson had been
1: alive today, oh, I'd hate to. It's so, it's so sad because he would
0: have been, God, he would have been all over it. All over yeah. it. Uh, so, I was wondering if you could talk a little about uh, the M Word. and Will, uh, my pleasure. Uh,
1: so in this film, uh, it seemed to me nobody had made a real film about menopause. Uh, it's a subject that embarrasses most men. They don't know what quite to talk, how to talk about it. And uh, I knew all these women of a certain age who were beginning to talk about that or have things going on. And so I, I thought, well, I'll try to make that into a, th- a comedy and then about a few other things, you know. Um, and that's that was the genesis of this. Yeah.
0: Uh, there's a few names uh, that I wanted to kind of throw out there that I knew you kind of worked with uh, okay. early on in your careers. Uh, one is Larry David, uh, who well, in was in Ken the... Baker Cherry Pie. Yeah, that's <laughs> his first film. How did you uh, come about we, seeing Larry David? We hung David? out was together a... at the
1: cafe that, that is the heart of uh, Ken Baker Cherry Pie. It was a real yeah. cafe, uh, Cafe Central, and we, everybody hung out there show business wannabes, people who were actors or wanted to be or starting out. And I knew him there like I knew a lot of people. And I said, hey, throw you in the scene. He yeah. said, okay. It turned out to be his first movie, yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, he's a great improviser and that's his whole process yeah. of Curb Your Enthusiasm. Yeah, which so. I love. I love his
1: work. Love his work. Yeah.
0: It was a great show. And then uh, another name is Melissa Leo who was in O.A.'s She was and, walking uh, on stilts. Hamptons. She was walking on stilts
1: to advertise something in front of the New York Public Library on 42nd Street. Still walking. That's how she was making her living. Yeah. But again, at the same cafe I met her and I thought there was something special and I cast her as, as my wife's sister in the film about the end of my first marriage always. Yeah. And I've been
0: using her ever since. Yeah, last summer in the Hamptons and... Uh, oh, many. Yeah. 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 She won an Oscar a few years ago which is, you know, incredible in The Fighter. Yeah. Yeah, she's had a great... Great upsurge in her career, uh, and then another uh, John Robin Bates, who was in Last Robbie, Summer in the Hamptons, yeah. and uh, I guess a couple other uh, no. no was, oh yeah, one other. That's uh, right. That's right. Hollywood Dreams. Yeah, where he's a yeah. playwright. Yeah, Robbie is a
1: friend of mine. Uh, again, who never acted, and I needed a character to play the gay character, and Robbie's gay and comfortable with his gayness in terms of uh, not minding not. You know, just so being healthy about it. And he um, liked the idea of what I was trying to do in that film. And so uh, I said, well, why don't you play it? He said, I can't act. I'm not an actor. I said, good. That's that's Those are the kind of people I like. Mm-hmm. And he did a great job. He did a really terrific job, I think, Robbie. Yeah. Yeah. And an uh, incredible playwright. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, he, he I went to his openings in New York. He keeps i keep getting emails saying when are you gonna what's the next movie
0: for me <laughs> you know uh he, yeah he's he was very good as melissa's sister brother as melissa's brother in that definitely yeah it's very natural sometimes it's good to have people who aren't necessarily actors exactly because they don't have that thing in their mind where it's like i have to perform either, i have to show either off they're,
1: if they're really good actors they don't have the thing yeah or if they're real people the great thing about my brother was he never had that thing because he never thinks of himself as an actor. Yeah. Same with Zach. You know? I even
0: thought uh, Bob Rafelson in Always. Same was, thing. You know, he had that yeah. he just shine yeah. right there. <laughs> yeah, because
1: he was like, I don't have to do anything. I just have to be Bob Rafelson. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, that's 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 true. And Robbie just said, what do I do? I said, you're Robbie. And he would give you another name. Yeah. This is the circumstance. You've got a sister. You've had a little incestuous thing going on you're gay <laughs> you think you can play that? so uh, it, it was uh, it's fun because you can take people take elements of their life l- allow them to really use those and not worry about the, the traditional concepts of can this person act or not
0: act Yeah. Um, or if they're playing like a character you know you're just sort of bringing out what's in them yeah I, I, the, the character should be in my opinion unless they're enormously skilled actors
1: and I'm less interested in that Characters close to something emotionally about them, that you can then work on and bring out, and that's relevant to the story that you're trying to tell. Yeah, like Michael Imperioli is an extraordinary actor, and like everybody else, he's I, in uh, the M word. Yeah, yeah. You haven't seen that? Ah, uh, not yet. But uh, the it's like everybody else, <laughs> oh, that's right. Yeah. Like everybody else uh, uh, who comes to this process, he was like every other solid actor. I mean, he was very intimidated by it, and he didn't. He, He was daring himself by doing it because, you know, where's the script? I said, here it is. Oh, good. I said, but, you know, you're free to change it. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, when you're actually shooting it, this is what story has to happen. But you can achieve this story as long as we've got you in the right clothing, that when you go through this door, you come out of the other door in the right clothing. Uh, You can, you know, you can find... And he got nervous because it was so open and he loved it he said at the end of the shoot that he felt like he knew for the first time he felt for the first time like he had felt when he was a student in acting classes the excitement of being an actor and of finding and stuff yeah.
0: especially coming from TV with the Sopranos where it's very it's structured such, yeah even though he was fucking great in that yeah. and it's a, it's a
1: sensational part and I've got nothing against things that are structured like that it's just not the way I like to work I come from studio I come from Strasbourg, you know but I also come from improvisational theater from stand-up and stuff like that I, yeah. did, I did so for me it's some sort of mixture of the moment and a, through line of a person's personality or character you know and um, I mean getting Orson to be Orson in, was not as easy as you might think he's never been Orson on film he's always put on noses and everything and hid behind masks as he so to get him in, in like I did in um, um, Someone to Love no in Someone to Love yeah. It was very tricky because he wanted to do it because he'd seen me in, in all ways. And he said to me, Jesus, I thought he was, I, I, I thought he was, he said, God, how did he put it? He said, I want to I do that just once. And I thought, oh, my God, he loves this movie. I was very excited. Orson Welles loves my movie. He, I said, oh, you, he said, yeah, yeah, I like it a lot, but that's not what I'm talking about. He said, I see you playing yourself, warts and all. Crying, being fucked up, being an asshole. I would like that once. I'm always hiding behind masks. I'm always, you know. So I said, great, the next movie, uh, um, I keep forgetting the title of my own movie. Oh, Someone's Alone. Someone's Alone. <laughs> <laughs> I just want you sitting in the back of the theater commenting on what's going on. I'm playing a, a director who's going through and individuals who are at this point in their life who, that they're alone, not in a relation with somebody else. And, and he said, oh, sure, I'll do that. And then he showed up in full makeup as a Greek with an accent and I said, no, I had to trick him four times. And of course you couldn't trick Austin. He wanted to be made to be allowed to show who he really was. Yeah. Which is why I love having someone to love out there. Because if somebody wants to know who he is, you read the book and you see someone to love and you really get to know him. You know, you really get to know him. But that wasn't easy. He put out three he said, okay, leave me alone for one he hour. He just must have
0: felt so vulnerable sometimes he to even have that he hated his nose that. He said, look
1: at this, who cares? Uh, and the same reason he boomed to people and he did some of the obnoxious things like Richard Burton, the thing with him in the book. Yeah, with the... So really, I, I kicked him under the table, he told me he didn't, want, he didn't need a Jewish Jiminy Cricket. He said, I don't need a Jewish conscience. He he, 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 His insecurity, his small nose or whatever his issue was, felt that he had to create some intimidating persona and he wasn't like that with me so we were able to be so close because he never did that bullshit with me yeah. and therefore what he really meant when he saw me playing this vulnerable person in Always, ways he said he'd like to show his own his own thing you know once on film and I, I got it I mean
0: that's what I love about that I got it yeah. so. and all the uh, philosophy that he has in that's the film and talking about relief, that's all from Absolutely. that wasn't script that was all kind of his. I uh, said
1: to him you know the lunches we've had all the lunches we've had all I want is this to be like another lunch I mean we're talking about theater actor but whatever we're talking about what you feel what you
0: believe I wouldn't write a word for him at that point when he talks about uh, relationships and how they've evolved it's so uh, I mean, it's applicable to today you know uh, it's it's so profound it's it's profound and it's eternal and um, and it's
1: and it's unique because it's his expression you know and he he had a big thing about fat men shouldn't laugh on screen because it's it's unattractive, which of course is nothing. Like he, so he wouldn't laugh. So what happened was that he at the end of the movie, he said, I don't know if you know this at the end of the, do you know, what I'm telling yeah,
0: you? where he sort of yells out cut or like uh, he director. suddenly <laughs> says yeah.
1: he says let's cut this it's getting too sweet, <laughs> and I said no I'm not gonna, I'm not going to say cut Orson, and he turns to my c- cameraman who's been with me for seven twelve movies now the Israeli my cam, Israeli cameraman Hananya and he says well I'm a director I can say cut and he looks into the camera and says cut and Hananya cuts yeah. and I screamed Hananya what are you doing he said Orson Welles told me to cut <laughs> I said I don't give a shit this is my movie and I turned it back on but Orson didn't see me turning it back on yeah. and he reached behind him where he had a lit cigar I don't know how he did that a cigar lit behind him pulled it on and everybody started applauding him all the other actors and the crew and he started laughing and he wouldn't have done it if he'd known the camera was back on Yeah, didn't have that self-conscious uh, no not at all and yeah. he's laughing <laughs> and then I realized when uh, five months later I guess six months later he died and I realized boy if he'd lived I'd never be able to I couldn't use this in the movie but this is the best way to end this movie to give Orson Wells his last laugh after 50 years of having to deal with all those people and being you know put all through all that shit and it's a wonderful moment I'm really if I have to pick a moment in my film that I films that I just I'm so happy exists it's a very human very natural and uh, he keeps laughing and and then he blows me a kiss (laughs) That's a beautiful thing uh, he was a beautiful guy really beautiful man I love that the book is out because because people have so many illusions about him you know he created so much of it himself. There's
0: that whole sort of myth of him leaving films Not near post production and, and, and uh, having some kind of weird, yeah, you know, all this stuff being difficult and difficult. That was sort of the,
1: yeah. and he was. You could see in like how he dealt with that HBO woman. It yeah. was outrageous.
0: You saw that <laughs> in the book, right? Yeah, I mean, he. Uh, I mean, he had that opportunity there, but yet since she seemed a little bit too uninterested, no. But it was you see, of, the thing uh,
1: was that he got it. Yeah, I didn't get it at the time. He got that what she was saying was she wants half-hour episodes and she's going to stay in control of the narrative. And he knew he couldn't work under those circumstances. He knew yeah. immediately
0: it wasn't going to work. But, you know... It's incredible watching, like, True Detective and all these great miniseries now. That would have been Orson Welles' uh, vehicle. The, the long have form. The ten episodes and, hour, hour long. and the long form, you know... Yeah. I, uh, God, ever since The Sopranos,
1: I felt, oh, if only Orson were alive. This is... <laughs> this is made for him this is what he wanted to try to do in film which had no practical way of being I just noticed us up there it's so funny I didn't I forgot
0: (laughs) is Uh, that from uh, Safe Place? yeah that's in in Central Park yeah yeah he was a sweet guy Uh, I was just going to ask you one last question about uh, how you work with a cinematographer Mm -hmm. uh, with Hania do you uh, Hanania Hanania. I'm sorry it's okay (laughs) Do you have any shot lists going in? I know... No, no shot lists. Is there any sort of uh, visual conception that you have sometimes? Yeah, I say, I say look, uh, two cameras, yeah. uh, one on her and one on him.
1: That's my visual. <laughs> that's my uh, uh, Do high, it's more attractive. Yeah. Uh, try to follow that. Mainly follow the actors, if they're walking and if they're going, if they surprise you. The reason <laughs> I got them to begin with, when I got them after a few films...
0: I guess almost every one of your films you've used them in. Were, well, uh, I didn't use them in a fear. safe place. Yeah. I, I had this big studio guy who... You know that story, right? Yeah, the, he uh, was, they were very kind of conservative. Uh, but you know Orson, what Orson said to me there? Yeah, tell him it's a dream sequence. That's and right, that's one of the great... <laughs> so I had that, and then on tracks I
1: had a guy who was pretty good, but young and was mm-hmm. good, and on Sitting Ducks. But then uh, I got Hanania on Always. And he was an army photographer, an Israeli army photographer, which meant to me, since he was an army photographer, he had to jump in and out of foxholes. He had to run after the troops. Yeah. He, could, he wasn't somebody who could...
0: He wasn't who, about who, static composition. Yeah, and he didn't
1: need to, like... He's never once had a taste. Focus puller. Focus puller and, focus or, yeah. puller and f- all of that. And that suited my way of working, where I was saying to the actors, I'm not telling you to go here to here and then say this. Get into this, here, you know the dialogue written... Say it, and then go whenever you want direction, and, and we'll follow you. Yeah, and that's that's uh, why I kept using them so much. I mean, I just love love that uh, that that feel of real life. I've Just written a play which is going to be opening in two months here, and so. On.
0: Uh, the editor the, the editor away. Got hmm? the Edgemark, Yeah. 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 Uh,
1: what is Good. the play? What is the play about? Uh, it's called Train to Zakopane. Zakopane is a skiing resort in Poland. It takes place in the 1920s when a man, a young man in his early 30s, uh, going on the tra- who's Jewish, going on the train across Poland, meets a group of people uh, in a compartment, one of whom is a Polish nurse in the army, in the Polish army. And the conversation comes around somehow to Jews, and one way or another the they all prove to be vaguely anti-Semitic, but this particular girl says, uh, but she can smell a Jew a kilometer away. And this character, based upon my father, this is a true story, so what happened to my father? My father, in his very elegant words, in telling me the story three times over 30 years, I have it taped. Uh, he says, so I decided then and there... That I, he that he didn't want to tell them he was Jewish because it would be uncomfortable. so they, 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 It was in the middle of the train. They wouldn't yeah. do anything, but it was just they would, uh, for the rest of the so he, he said, "I can make better propaganda, as he called it, for the Jews by not being Jewish here and so on." But I decided that I will get off this train with the girl. Yeah. And I will kiss the girl, was his euphemism, and then tell her that I'm Jewish. And then fuck the girl. Uh, and in fact, that's what happened. He flirted with her, convinced her, and they got off together at this Polish spa called Zakopane. And then things unfolded. But what unfolded, and why there's a play, is uh, they both got emotionally involved. So he kept putting off telling her, and she didn't know there was anything to know except she was falling in love. And then exactly. that's, 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 a, that's a good It's a good play, good story. Oh, definitely, I'm looking forward to Carrying it around with me, you know, it's one of the, when your father tells you a story since you are little, it was his his story that he always described as the thing he liked least about what he did in his life. The one time, my very sure of himself father decided he did something that wasn't completely correct, in fact, you know, it
0: was quite correct. Did you ever intend to write it as a film? No, never even occurred to me. Really? Never even occurred to me. What happened is that Tana yeah. Frederick,
1: who's uh, my wife has been my girlfriend for 12 years, um, and I've made six movies with her and f- five five or six plays. Um, I hadn't had a, a, a play in eight months. It was going cuckoo. We kept reading plays, trying to find plays. We almost committed to one. Did take one under option. just wasn't really good enough. And she just come off a year's run in The Rainmaker, where she got glowing, extraordinary reviews. She's the star of this one. And um, I suddenly thought, I, I want to a better writer her a play. She's going to go nuts if she doesn't get a play. And I was going over my... I've been working for a year on a book for a year. How many years, for Lauren?
0: Uh, I don't know if Lauren can hear you.
1: Ten, no, she can Ten, ten years, eleven years. yeah. years on a book called uh, The Third Stone on the Fourth Row, A Brief History of the Jewish People. No, less, it's like a, it's a presumptuous title. But so so um, I thought, and in there is story in the story. Stuart and your story. father had told you this many years ago? Yeah, yeah, and it was in this book that I already was coming to the editing stage of. As like a page, a page and a half, in a four hundred page, five hundred page book, but suddenly I came across. I thought that that's a, that nurse is a good part for Tana, and we'll find we'll cast a guy to play my father, and we'll these other people. And I, I, I've never written anything as easily, and I've never had anything. We'll see what happens when it opens, you know. But I've never had anything so responded to by everybody who's read it. It was like waiting to be read. a
0: good feeling. How do you uh, work in uh, in a theater? Process different from filmmaking. Completely different. Because f- filmmaking is so spontaneous and you're there and you're filming like right at the moment, and, whereas in and, theater you're rehearsing so much. Right. And, get that. And well, I'm not rehearsing. I don't direct the theater. Oh, you're not directing? No, uh, I never do that.
1: No, I haven't done that since, since college. Um, no, for theater I like to write and as opposed to movies where I believe in improvisation and I encourage actors to bring a lot of themselves and frequently what they give me that is not mm-hmm. in the script is more exciting for me more spo- yeah, spontaneous and more amazing and i end up using more of that yeah uh, in the finished movie they tell me that I'm, in plays that i've written i'm some kind of pathetic stickler who can't stand it if they ch- change one like word or vowel you know if it's not what i wrote sort of the other side of the coin completely from the, uh, because i am film- of all the direct uh, all the filmmakers i think ever I mean, there may be some experimental crazies somewhere, but I'm the only one who I really... I, I completely allow the actors to go... In. And once I've got the storyline and the structure and how you got from this to through the door, you know, so therefore I have to know what clothing they're wearing, but basically I'm very alive during the process to what the actors give and creating the movie frequently, um, if not out of that, colored enormously by that. By their contributions, but here I don't want any contributions. <laughs> I want—I want, I want in the play. I, I, I write it. I rewrite it. I'm still getting with it, and uh, I want it to be uh, what I wrote. So uh, Tana pointed out to me what, what a, you know—two plays ago. What a difference! I hadn't even realized that. But it's—it's it's two most opposite kind of behaviors in terms of uh, my feeling about the
0: writing. I've noticed in so many of your films uh, you tend to use one location or sort of yeah. cluster in locations. Yeah. So when you're writing a screenplay, do you have in mind, this is my budget, I really have to limit what my canvas is in a sense?
1: I, I don't... Uh, my writing isn't related to that. My decision of location is. The reason there's so many in one centralized location is because half of movie making is picking you know, companies yeah. up uh, crews and actors and moving them and getting them settled and doing that for three days on location, worrying about location. So I, I write movies, trying to find centralized location stories. I mean specifically, um, like I think of like New Year's Day. Well, which is was in my year. apartment then in New York uh, that I had just moved into, so it was an empty apartment in New York. Uh, uh, I don't know if you saw Always about the end of my first marriage. Yeah, that was, was at your entirely home, at the yeah. house she and I had lived in. And now we were going through a divorce in that house I never in that film like in New Year's Day never left I part of the game for me then was okay I'm not going to even do an external shot I'm not allowed to <laughs> once I've tried this discipline and it also creates a certain kind of um, it gives energy uh, to centralize the physical location so much of movie making has to do with the use which is beautiful and I can enjoy it Lawrence of Arabia you know you can go out there and yeah. shoot the world and make it very gorgeous and, but for me, since my films are about people and about their relationships and their emotions, the, the more I'm not distracted by my environment, the more it's not, oh, isn't that pretty, and look at that, you know, the more it's about people in a location being forced to confront themselves and yeah. their emotions. And you can the, focus the, the in background. on the
0: performance and, and emotionally, making that. And yeah. emotionally,
1: it, it puts people in a totally different place uh, than if they have space. And you can, you know, I, I come from the actor's studio, in Lee Strasberg, and that that way of working, which is organic, and Stanislavski and all of that, which, which really is from the instrument of the actor. I'm very much an actor's director. So I want their instruments to be as focused, as as open to... To their insides, but not to be affected by their outsides, you know, to be affected by the story and the emotions and what they bring to it. So I found that single locations economically make the movie much more possible within my kind of range of filmmaking. And also sort of force actors into a place where it is about them and not, uh, you know, going off, which you can't resist if you're making another kind of film and showing. Something, a landscape, or it doesn't, so I'm much more interested in people. Yeah.
0: It's almost what like Ingmar Bergman would do, where you would really focus I in was on hugely implement. influenced by that. I was hugely influenced by Bergman
1: in terms of locations and in terms of emotional confrontations between men and women. Yeah. Huge. And Fellini, who was my other big influence, uh, it was about looking at yourself and being willing to centralize a film frequently in yourself, you know, like an eight and a half.
0: What do you think has been the proudest moment of your career? Hmm. Or project that you feel that you're the most proud of? Well,
1: proud isn't maybe the word,
0: but as I look at
1: it, I'm I'm enormously impressed with myself about the insanity of having made always. When I think about, you know, the pain I was in at the time, and then deciding, and again, Orson... And your real ex wife was. uh, Yes, and we were going through it, and I thought some. uh. And every day, what would happen is we'd arrive, like it was, we're back home. I shot it in the house we lived in. And you were uh, living at the house? I was living alone there, she had left. So now she came back to make the movie, and we're waiting, and then the crew comes, and then the actors come, and then we have lunch, and it's like we're having guests at the house. And we're putting on a little party. Oh, it's a movie. And then we shoot the scene, we shoot it. And then at nighttime, the actors leave, and the, the, you know, and the crew leaves. And then she leaves. And I said, well, do you really want to, do you want to, you know? And so I, it's like being left over and over and over again. And every day setting it up like being back together.
0: Yeah.
1: And it was, it was, I'm, so I'm, I don't know if impressed is the word or I should be institutionalized but it it was it's an astonishing thing but I I just really love the truthfulness of what I get from actors and I like my films very much because they are my films you love them or you hate them and there are plenty of people in both categories I never have to compromise and uh, I'm able to make them for for myself, basically, for what I think, you know, like you do in any other art form, nobody's surprised that a painter does that or a musician. Yeah. But film, they always think has to have some commercial dimension to it and be compromised for for that. And Orson taught me, you know, never make a film for anybody else. He said because you know, event- eventually nobody knows what's going to work anyway commercially, and you have to live with it for the rest of your life. He said the worst thing that he felt was the films he saw that he had.
0: St- it let the producers convince him to do something that he didn't want to do. And now they're down there. And, and having that fear, oh, the producers are going to think this or that, and not yeah, you know, all of that. in that. all of that. So the freedom has been... And that's Birch, thanks to Birch Schneider
1: spoiling me like that in my first movie, so suddenly I felt I can make movies in this Hollywood system.
0: Yeah, which was surprisingly a, a studio movie of Columbia I, I, Pictures. I, and, my only studio yeah. movie. I mean, it's
1: very bizarre. And... You know, circumstances in life vary, but there are always in somebody's life a moment, a kind of critical moment, when you make certain kind of choices, you may know why, you may not even know why, that that define you, especially as an artist, that define you for the rest of your life, if you stay with them. And the people who've had trouble, it seems to me, are the ones who have not stuck to that. And they've wanted to, and they haven't. Many, many friends of mine stop directing, stop, you know, because they got told no or they, you know, I think of a career like Bob Rafelson, who I consider was a great director. Yeah, I mean, Five Easy Pieces one of my favorite films. Mine I, too, mine yeah. too. And he's he was uh, brilliant. And he got into a fight with a studio at this one film and they uh, sent a guy down and he threw a chair or something. And that's the end of the career because, and I've, I used to say to him all the time, well, you don't have to make movies that way, this way. He said, but where's the... You know, they all they all want that big scope yeah, and, and that big, you know, f- f- payment. Yeah, they get used to that. So that's why the hope always is with kids who are struggling to make their early films, because they are free. They don't yet know that you can't do this and you can't do that. And and also the new economics are great because you can make a film now and and show it. The, and suddenly it's like you can show it to all your friends. Uh, you know, uh, on the internet.